good evening. It is good to be together. It is good to be with you. It's great to be in a place, in a country where we are comfortable and we are dry and uh, we don't have to fear of outsiders you know, intruding. And so we are truly blessed in so many, many, many ways. A few weeks back, we, I did a lesson on the subject of benevolence, the idea of cultivating a benevolent spirit. Godly benevolence is truly a heart issue. It is a heart issue that must be rooted in the idea of every Christian to the point that as saints, we are moved to act mercifully because we have compassion on people who are hurting. Now, this desire to, to do good for others has to be more than just words, though. It needs to grow out of the idea of sincere deeds of love, but also deeds of faith. And so it is a reflection of a steadfast heart of goodwill and of kindness and of charitableness. And so as members of the body of Christ, as Christians, we are to be clothed with this attitude. We are to be clothed with a very Christ-like, benevolent spirit. The subject of benevolence is a spiritual matter. It is a doctrinal matter. And this evening, we just want to address the question of uh, 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 being this, what has Christ our Lord instructed the church to do in regard to the works of benevolence, in being charitable as a congregation? What has the Lord instructed the church as his people? The responsibility of the church, though, is going to be a little bit different from the responsibility of the individual. And we'll point out that distinction in the lesson. But in this introduction, I simply want to say Christ does have some guidelines. Christ has placed some limitations on what he expects his church to be doing when it comes to this ordained work of doing benevolence as God's people. No matter what subject we look at, we always must remember this, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the builder of his church. He is the church, his builder. He is the one who has purchased her. He is also the cornerstone, the savior, and the head. And so we must reverently look to God's word and respect what we are told about this very important subject. What we need to be doing as individual Christians in our personal lives, but also what we need to be doing as a congregation in doing the work of benevolence as Christ has prescribed us to do. We're to begin with that well-known text of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where we are very plainly told that saints, members of the body of Christ, members of the congregation of the Lord, are commanded to take collections. You know, we are commanded to take an offering on the first day of every week. And what I simply want to point out here in the beginning of this lesson is this, that this weekly collection that's taken from Christians from the membership of the body of Christ is to be used for the saints. 
And it clearly brings that out. That this collection is going to be used for the saints. That is, church funds are to be used in a limited manner. The recipients of the saints' weekly contributions must always be Christians. Now, tonight we're looking at the subject of benevolence. We're not looking at the subject of, of evangelism and, and supporting that kind of work. Tonight is simply the subject of benevolence, but the recipients of funds from God's people is to be Christians. It is for the saints. But let's look at a couple, just a couple instructions that we find in the New Testament that guides us and helps us to use wisdom. There is discernment that we must use when it comes to doing benevolence for saints, for Christians. And how do we disperse, disperse those funds and when should we do it and to whom and who should be the Christian that receives that? The physical needs of man is always going to be greater than your ability. And the physical needs of mankind is always going to be greater than the church's ability. In John 12, it is the occasion where Mary comes to anoint Jesus with a very precious ointment. And Judas Iscariot criticizes what she's doing. And Jesus rebuked Judas for what he said. And to me, it's very interesting when he points to the fact that, you know, she has saved this for my burial. And he goes on to say, you will always have the poor with you. There will always be poverty in the world. You will not eradicate the world of poverty. And that is not the mission of the Lord's church. That's not the mission of the body that Jesus purchased and built with his blood is to eradicate poverty and all the, the, the sad ills of, of society. Now, are we to do what we can do and be doing as individuals? Yes. Use your resources God gives you as wise stewards and serve. Serve your fellow man the best you can. But our subject tonight is really the, the idea of the church. And so here's a guideline in the sense that we need to understand the church's mission is not simply to solve all the social ills of life and culture. Another passage to consider is over in 2 Thessalonians, where here the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians, the church at Thessalonica, and he's rebuking them because among that number, there are some brothers, you know, some brethren who were not behaving as they ought as children of God, as Christians. To the point that if they didn't make changes, if they did not manifest signs of repentance, that further action was, you know, was going to be needed to try to reach the heart to bring about the right action in return. And so we find here in this particular chapter, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the idea of laziness or idleness is condemned. For example, in verse 10, he says, Even when we are with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's strong words. 
And that's a, and here, here he's calling for a judgment to be made, a discernment. And he's talking not, he's not just talking about the world. He's talking about Christians here. He said, if you have a brother among you and he is unwilling to work, yeah, yeah, you simply, you know, you know, taking care of him for the rest of life is not necessarily the right thing to do for him. He says, neither is not to eat. For we, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. He goes on to say, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And he goes on then in the very next verse, talk about perhaps some disciplinary measures that they may have to take to bring about the right kind of repentance. And so the idea here is purposeful unemployment. Things happen and you might be unemployed and it wasn't your choice. And we recognize that. But purposeful unemployment, laziness, idleness, being a busybody, that is not right for a Christian to behave that way. And that is fertile soil for sin, of all kinds of sin. And the church here is being directed to, you You need to address this problem among you, uh, these brethren who have this attitude and they're not behaving like they should. And so what this infers is, is that the church must not ever encourage codependency. You know, once again, the church's mission is not just to take care of everybody's problems. Now, if they're unwilling to work, there is a, there's a greater issue here that needs to be addressed of a spiritual nature. And so there's a, there's a, you know, there's a limitation here. It's limiting aiding Christians who have a very wrong attitude about their willingness and the use of their time to do labor. One more just passage to consider in the sense of wisdom that's necessary to decide to whom should we do benevolence as a body of believers. And that is over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there are some very specific instructions in regard to taking care of widows. And these widows are Christians. And so Paul gives a lengthy, it's a paragraph worth of reading here, where he clearly points out that there is a distinction between what the individual is supposed to be doing and what the church is liable for doing. For example, dropping down near the end of the paragraph, verse 14, verse 14 says, Therefore, I want you younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And then in verse 16 says, If any woman who is a believer has widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may, ass- it may assist those who are widows indeed. Clearly here, there is a distinction being made between which widows should receive help from the church and which widows should not. And so the judgment has to be made 
wisdom has to be used, and not going into the whole context of, of this particular chapter, you know, this is not our entire focus, but clearly he defines who is the widow indeed, her character, her example, you know, the, 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 her suffering, her situation, all that is described, and the fact that it says, let not the church be burdened, or let not the church, church be charged, in verse 16, clearly implies that there is somebody else who's supposed to be taking some personal responsibility. What happens today, I think, in our culture, and not just in the religious culture, but I think even in our American culture, and, and I say this carefully, so you know, you know, I'm not trying to be you know, terribly judgmental here, but today people have a tendency to institutionalize everything. We want to institutionalize personal responsibility. And when we do that, when we do that, now there, there are institutions that need to be in place to supply needs. But we got to be careful to think that let's just, let's just allow the institutions of our culture solve all our problems. Because what it does, it really gives us a big discount. The church has responsibilities. And the Lord directs us what kind of responsibilities we need to be doing. But also the individual has responsibilities, and the Lord directs us about the individual as well. And in this particular context, it clearly points out the fact, that, okay, there is a distinction. There's some individual responsibility that needs to be taken care of, and the church is not to be you know, burdened with that. But then there are, there are other cases where, okay, yes, the church needs to be burdened by that, and that's the church's responsibility. And so according to biblical specifications found here in this particular paragraph, the church must be selective in whom they're going to assist on an ongoing, continual basis. And so that's going to require careful examination of the situation. It's going to careful examination and adherence to the biblical pattern and also, you know, using wisdom, you know, to make the best choice in the distribution of those funds because the church is not to be burdened by every possible financial and social problem people have in the world, but also not every financial and social problem that even a Christian has. You know, there, is, there, are, there are guidelines, there are principles, and there are certain limitations that we're to use in the scriptures to help us realize, oh, yes, the church as a body of believers needs to be involved in benevolence. We need to have that Christ-like spirit, but let us do it in the way that we are directed to do it. So the New Testament pattern is that the church must take care of its own family. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That God expects his family to take care of his family. That is, you know, Christians or the body of Christians, a congregated Christians is to be taking care of needy brethren, needy saints. And you see that clearly exemplified and taught in the New Testament beginning in Acts. Let's begin in Acts chapter 4. We're not going to read all of these passages. But in Acts chapter 4, we are still 
you know, in Jerusalem, the body of uh, Christ is growing by leaps and bounds. There are hearts that are being receptive, and they are busy every day. And, and because of that growth, there is also some other needs that are arising because of their circumstances. But we see here in Jerusalem the example of a congregate of believers taking care of their own needy, their own brethren that's among them, among their local body and family. So here in Acts chapter 4, beginning there in verse 32, he says, "...in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart." And soil, soul, excuse me. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have in Jerusalem a need, a great need, and a growing need among these believers. And, and you think about this situation in this, you know, large city, you know, in Judea, you know, Christians are probably not the only ones in need in that city. They're probably not the only ones that may be dealing with some poverty issues, you know. But the church... His responsibility was not to solve the poverty in Jerusalem and not to you know, solve, you know, the, you know, solve all the needs of you know, whoever in Jerusalem. The church's responsibility was to make sure they took care, took care of their spiritual family. And so the churchman was directed to caring for those that were among them. He talks about that. You know, there was not a needy person among them. Why is that? Because they were supplying it. That's why. And they're only, and you see, and they're only doing it to those who had a need. It's not like it was just uh, communism, socialism. Okay, we're, we're going to sell everything and we're just going to divide it up equally. No, that's not what's going on here. People are making sacrifices, yes. Because it's growing out of love. It's growing out of faith. That was their decision to make that sacrifice. Then, you know, they would contribute whatever, you know, they desired to contribute. And then the judgment had to be made by the leadership of the church in Jerusalem to distribute, you know, those funds properly to the people who were in need among them. And so here you have an example of a body of believers taking care of their spiritual family at home. Now, money is not the only thing involved in, in taking care of, of these kind of situations. It, it, it involves a number of other aspects uh, of care. There, obviously, there has to be some kind of oversight. There has to be some kind of management in this. There, there, there's organization, organizing how to do it. There's a planning of it. You know, there's labor. There's time. There's all sorts of kind of things would come into play when it comes to trying to take care of this need. Okay, so once, once you have the money now, how do you distribute that? 
You know, how do you use that money? And, you know, and so you're going to have to you know, have oversight. You're going to have to have management. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 6. We're still in Jerusalem. It's still a local body taking care of its own. And it involves widows. Because it, it, that tended to be, in that particular time, the greater need that was very frequent in that culture. And so there is this need of widows among them. And so in chapter 6, he says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenists against the Hebrews because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And they were then sent to take care of this work. And so you think of this idea of the daily distribution of this need, and all the work that that would involve. The daily distribution, we don't know how many widows that they're taking care of, but I just get the impression, you know, I don't know what your impression, but I just get the impression there's a lot. You know, that's just my impression. This text doesn't say specifically how many, but this is a great need among the church. And so not only did it require funds, money, but it also required time and labor, and oversight, and management. All of that comes into into this. And once again, that was part of the benevolence. And the focus of this benevolence of God's people as a body, as a congregate of believers, is to be toward those who are your spiritual brethren. But it's not limited to just to the local group. And we see that elsewhere in the New Testament. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And let's just read a few verses there. As we are now up in the north, in Syria, in the church of Antioch. And it is there, as you probably well know, as you see in verse 26, that this body of believers are the first ones to be identified as Christians. They are the first disciples to be called Christians, Christians, and that happened in Antioch. And the reading begins there in verse 27. Now, at this time, you know, so while Paul and Barnabas are there working with them, teaching and edifying, while that's all going on, he says, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch's in the north, but Jerusalem is higher elevation. So they've come down to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. So here is a global famine that God is warning Christians about. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. 
And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So the news gets to the brethren in Antioch up in Syria that this is going to happen and is going to affect a large portion of the world. And the saints and the brethren in Antioch decide, hey, we need to step up and we need to do something to help our brethren in Jerusalem. Now, we all know that natural catastrophe can hit at any time. Life is filled with all kinds of uncertainties. And a natural catastrophe can cause churches to be unable to supply all of their own needs. When you've got a large enough catastrophe and it hits you, that local body of believers is unable now to take care of all their needs because it's just too big of a need for them. And that's what's going on here in the first century when Antioch sends help down to Jerusalem. That they, they wanted to use their abilities and their resources to help the brethren in, in Jerusalem so that they had what they needed. Now, we need to make a very quick distinction that this is not the same thing as where, okay, some, some church solicits money from another church because, hey, I've got this great idea. Yeah, I, I think we need, to, we need to do this program. Oh, I, I, we need to do this ministry, you know, but we don't have the money to do it, so we want you to support our work. That's not what's going on here. It's not creating some uh, program and some ministry. You have this great idea, but, you know, you can't do it out of your own money. So you, you start soliciting funds from other churches, yeah, and so it, yeah, so it is not a true need. It's not a true need. What's happening here is it's a real need. Famine hit, and the brethren were in need, and so they reacted. They responded to that need. In Acts, excuse me, in First Corinthians chapter sixteen, we, we've read that you know already this evening, but had had that read because it emphasizes this idea, once again, of churches elsewhere sending you know, a gift, and interestingly, it's, it's to Jerusalem still, but here in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you've got you know, Paul saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm instructing you the same thing I told the, your, the brethren in Galatia. I'm not telling y'all different things. You're all, you're all getting the same instruction you know, by the Holy Spirit from me. And so he says, oh, so you need to make this collection. The collection is for the saints. And he says in verse 3, and when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And so here is this distributing aid to needy Christians in other areas and other geographical places, your spiritual family elsewhere. And that's the example. And we we do this not to cause uh, one group to suffer because of helping another group, but rather it's, it's the idea of helping supply the lack of another when you have an abundance. 
And that's brought out particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Just want to read a couple of verses in the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Where Paul makes that point, he's instructing the church you know, at Corinth about you know, you know, aiding and doing charitable things, doing benevolence for brethren elsewhere. And he says here in verse 13, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. He says, I'm not telling you this, I'm not instructing you this to do this, to make it hard on you, make it easy on you. No, it's, it's, it's not about that. It's about equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. You, know, you have the resources, and so you, know, it's a, you, know, you can help. So that you, their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. It may reverse one day. It may turn around that you'll be the one in need because of some natural catastrophe, and those brethren that you once helped will respond likewise and send to your aid. Let me read one more passage that illustrates this idea of the pattern of the Lord's body in taking care of needy Christians. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, beginning there in verse 25, says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So it's saints in need in a different locality. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also material things. Therefore... When I finish this and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go my way to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in, fullness, in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So there is a pattern that you know, you know, we are to follow when it comes to the instruction and the guidelines and, the, and uh, the authority of what the church needs to be doing, what needs to be our focus. And, you know, what, what needs to be our primary work, you know, there is a guide for us to follow. I want to end very quickly on this point. And it is, what about benevolence and me? You and me. What about us? Let's get back to the idea of individual responsibility. Clearly, we need to make sure that our, our congregations and the congregation we're a member, that we're doing the work of benevolence you know, in the way that the Lord has instructed us to do so. We need to be involved in that, and we need to do so rightfully, you know. You know so we need to make sure we're, we, we are adhering to that pattern, and we are involved in that kind of meeting the needs of brethren in need. But once again, but what about me? What about you? You know, the thing is, we need to make sure that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. For example, I need to make sure that I'm caring for myself as I'm clearly reminded in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that I am to see to my own needs, to do all that I can within my ability and my power and my opportunity, I need to see to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. That's not someone else's job. Now something can happen and I can't take care of myself. But as long as in my control, I need to be doing that. But that's not all. I need to be taking care of my family. 
It's not someone else's responsibility to take care of my family. I need to take care of myself, and I need to take care of my family. And that's brought out clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where, you know, we are instructed to see to the needs of our families and those under our care and watchfulness. But also, I need to make sure that I'm caring for my brethren It's not just a congregational issue here. It is also an individual one. I need to be doing what I can using my resources, using my opportunities that come around. I need to do what I can do to take care of my brethren. But also I need to make sure I'm taking care of those in need elsewhere, my fellow man. That's the individual responsibility. Whether he's friend or foe, we need to be seeing to that. In Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, you know, as you look at the very closing you know, verses of that chapter, where you know, we're told you know, in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, but respect what is right in the sight of all men. Uh, be at peace with all men as is possible and depends on you, verse 18. Now, never take your own revenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, verse 19. But then picking up verse 20, but if your enemy of all people, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yes, the church has a responsibility to make sure she is doing all that she is able to do and she's commanded to do. But we as individuals need to make make sure we are doing all that we are able to do and what we're commanded to do as well. You know, sometimes people in general, I'm just making a general statement here, you know, just people in general sometimes are very, very quick to kind of shirk off responsibility. You know, it's someone else's job, you know, it's, you know, you know they need to do it kind of thing. And maybe, and I'm saying at the same time, they may be assuming that some, you know, some institution is going to get that job done anyway, so I can just not, you know, be concerned about that. But that's really not the Christ-like attitude we need to have. The attitude we really need to have is we're all accountable. We're all accountable as individuals to God. And we all need to be acting benevolently in a Christ-like manner, using judgment, using wisdom, you know, using the resources. You know, we, what we cannot do, we cannot do. If we don't have the opportunity, we don't have the resources, obviously, you know, we can't do, do something. But using the right wisdom, we need to realize we need to be a people who truly have hearts that are moved to act in a compassionate way and to do according to what Christ would have us to do. Benevolence is not just about money. It really isn't. It involves money. You know, there, in, in funds, and, but that's not, that's really just a, a portion of benevolence. Benevolence is really all about serving. That's what benevolence is about. Serving, ministering. Now, I first have to get my own heart right to do that. But then secondly, then I need to do what I am able to do 
with a servant heart so that God is glorified in the way he needs to be glorified. You know, man's innovations may sound wonderful and just fantastic, but, you know, person to person, one-on-one, you know, touching people's lives in a very personal way is far more impactful than what sometimes the world suggests as a remedy to the needs of individuals. God, though, God, through his son, is the greatest servant. And he has given us the greatest gift. Think about that. There's no other gift greater than Jesus. No greater gift. And God gave you his son. Why? Because there is no greater need than what the Son can do for you. No man can save you. Only Jesus. And his gift to you is his Son. Because only he can supply that need of cleansing your soul, restoring your life to your creator so that you can live the rest of your days in the light, anchored to hope. If you believe Jesus be the Christ and you believe that with all your heart, but you've not obeyed the gospel yet, why not? Right now is a perfect opportunity to do that. Confess your faith unashamedly with your mouth that you believe Jesus be the Christ, the Son of God, that he died on the cross for you and was raised on the third day. Believe that and confess it. But also repent of your sins and come humbly, desiring to be immersed, baptized into Christ to have your sins washed away. We're ready to help you do that this very hour. If we can assist you any way spiritually, please come forward. Make your wishes known while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.